Grace, mercy, and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. (coughs) Humans like to count. We like to count things. We count what is the price of eggs. We count how tall our kids are. We count our age. We count how many points we scored in the game. And sometimes we're just counting the days, counting the moments. Maybe we're counting in anticipation of something that's coming that we're excited about. Maybe we're counting on something that's coming that we're longing for. Maybe we're just counting the days until something will end that we're sick of having in our life. Whatever we do as humans, we like to count and measure. We compare and contrast. We measure ourselves against other people, against other situations, against other visions for the future. When people come to the book of Revelation, then as human beings, we get excited. There are so many things you can count in the book of Revelation. Numbers, symbols, measurements. And so when people read the book of Revelation, they often get caught up in counting things and trying to use the numbers, symbols, measurements to determine people and places and events that are coming in history. We look at history as a long linear timeline and we want to measure and plot out how everything's going and how it's going to end. But does there come a point where we're counting on things that we shouldn't really be trying to count on? Does there come a point where we as humans are spending too much time measuring everything? Too much time counting the moments of every day. Too much time caught up in the daily hustle and hassle of what our life is demanding of us. Too caught up in the past, in regret of things we've done, in anger about things that have been done to us. Too caught up in the future, counting on what things are going to happen and worrying about what's going to happen next and what it's going to turn out to be. And maybe in all of this, we've lost sight of the present. We've lost sight of what's right in front of us, our family, our friends, our church, and most of all, our Savior. In our text from Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is teaching us to count on him. To count on him now, to count on him for the past, and to count on him for the future. From Revelation chapter 1, John is writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. Churches just like you. Churches and Christians who have the same sort of struggles that you have. Grace to you and peace, he writes. From him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the rulers of the kings on earth. 
John introduces his letter, and Revelation is a letter. Don't ever lose sight that it's a pastoral letter, a pastor writing to his churches. And so the goal of his letter is pastoral. It's for circumstances of everyday Christians like yourself to find in Christ encouragement. And he mentions here that a number we can count, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in this work of John that he's delivering to the churches, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the God who is, the God who was, and the God who is to come. First of all, the God who is, the present one, who I'm going to refer to as Jesus because later on in the book of Revelation, it allude, it specifically describes Jesus in these same terms. The one who is alive, who was dead, and who is alive forevermore. The is, was, is to come. Some people come to the book of Revelation and the Bible in general, and they're counting on criticisms. They're measuring things, counting verses, looking at sayings, in order to criticize what the Bible is trying to say. Instead of remaining with the text in the present moment of our experience of God in our lives, they're chopping it up into a historical document that they are trying to place into a certain time, setting, and purpose that it was never intended for. And some of these critics will come to this verse, verse 4, and right away jump out at any Christian who tries to believe in the Bible's reliability. And they'll say, see, look, right here in verse 4, there's an error. And you Christians believe that this is really an inspired work of God. John is writing with incorrect grammar. So either John got it wrong or the people who have manipulated the text have changed it and gotten it wrong because he uses bad Greek. When he says grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, he uses bad grammar. It would be something like me speaking to you and I I might say, yo, grace and peace to y'all. From he who is and who was and who, who's coming. And as you lay out that kind of grammar, anybody knows that it's incorrect. But John, in fact, knows exactly what he's doing. Sometimes we have debates about grammar with, is it to who or to whom? Are any of you ever get confused about who and whom? Is it supposed to be who or whom? And when it comes into this verse, it says grace and peace to you from he who is, which in English we translate it as him. Now, why is John using bad grammar in verse 4? Critics haven't spent enough time understanding the way that John is writing to know that he's doing this on purpose. And in fact, as you go through the book of Revelation, you find many examples of John intentionally using bad Greek. 
And the reason is, is because he's referencing the Hebrew Bible. And when you go back to the Hebrew Old Testament, the grammar is very different. And so in order to clue his readers in to an Old Testament reference, he uses Greek that is meant to translate Hebrew. And so it appears to us to be bad Greek, but he's really just referencing a passage in Exodus 3.14. In Exodus 3.14, Moses is at the burning bush. And God is telling him that he's going to visit his people and he's going to rescue his people from their bondage to the Egyptians in slavery. And Moses is hesitant. He doesn't know that he should be the one to go, and he certainly doesn't know what he would say. So he says, who should I send? Who should I tell them is sending me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, if I read that sentence to you in English, I am has sent me to you, is that, good? is that good grammar? John is referencing this verse. And when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, it translated this verse, he is. The one who is, is the literal translation. When they ask you who sent me to you, tell them the one who is. So when John wants to plug this verse in in just a couple words and make you think of Exodus and the burning bush story, he says, it is from he who is, which in Greek would have been bad grammar, but in the context of the Old Testament is perfect. It is referring to the I am God. He is. When you go back to Exodus chapter 3, it's almost like a riddle that you could never fully get to the bottom of. What does it mean that God is? That when God names himself, he simply says, I am the one who exists. Nothing more, nothing less. He doesn't say, I am the Almighty. He doesn't say, I am the God of South Carolina. He doesn't say anything that would limit who he is. He just says, I am. And in doing so, he's telling you that he is the God who is always with you. When he visits his people in Egypt and they're slaves to (coughs) a foreign king and other gods, they've been that way for 400 years. One thing you would want to know is that you're not alone. When you're going through a difficult time, when you're struggling with your finances, with your marriage, with your health, or just with your relationship with yourself, what's the last thing that you should have going on in your life? What's the worst thing for that circumstance? It's to be alone. When you're going through a difficult time, the worst thing you could do for yourself is to isolate. Because that will only compound the issue. It will only make it worse. 
If someone says to you, I love you, but then when a difficult time comes, they disappear, do they really love you? Or when you make a mistake, all they have to ever say to you is that you're a failure? Or when you get yourself into a pickle, all they have to say is fold their arms, say you got yourself into this, you can get yourself out? God wants us to know that he is, he's present, so that whatever difficulty you're facing, whatever trial, whatever daily mishap, he's the one that's going to be with you. He's the God of covenant, and covenant means he's not going to go back on his promise as long as you don't abandon him. Hold on to his promise. Hold on to his covenant. He will make good on what he said he's going to do. He is present, speaking to you now to give you his assurance of redemption. And we do need redemption. We need redemption because of the past. Now, if you were living in the first century and you were one of these seven churches... And you had grown up not knowing anything about Jesus or Christianity. Where do you think you would go for redemption? If you had made choices and suddenly your life was chaotic, it was steering toward destruction. Or events were coming upon you that you seemed to have no control of and it just keeps happening to you again and again. Where would you go? Any good Roman citizen who'd been raised properly, any good Greek Gentile would know, you go to the gods. And depending on your problem, you could go to one god or the other god, depending on what you wanted help with. But if you wanted the ultimate help, the type of help that governs kingdoms, that governs history, that governs the universe, you go to the most high god. Does anyone know what the Greek most high God is? Zeus. Now, the Romans adopted the same God under their own name, Jupiter, but we're talking about Zeus, the most high God. And for these pagan, lost unbelievers who had grown up understanding Zeus is the most high God, when they hear these verses... From John, they think, whoa, do you know that Jesus has just challenged Zeus for that spot? There's a quote from a Greek writing in which it says, about the same time period as John is writing, which says, quote, Zeus was, Zeus is, and Zeus shall be. Now, a little bit of a play here on words that John is doing is not only to quote the Exodus passage, that he is, but he adds these other two phrases. He was, and he is to come. And he might very well be taking a jab at Zeus, knowing that this is a saying that would only apply to Zeus, the Most High God, Zeus, who is the beginning and the end in Greek and Roman culture and religion. Romans and Greeks knew to give honor and credit to Zeus. 
When they looked at the course of human history, they knew that the gods were the ones that were scripting and controlling these things. But they also knew that gods were depending on the humans too. And where humans failed, the gods punished them. And where humans succeeded, the gods rewarded them. If they were true that the gods punished human failure and rewarded human success, where would America be? Where would any nation, any kingdom, any person in this world be? Well, if you take that approach, you adopt that approach, then it's survival of the fittest. It's the strongest will survive. It is leave your neighbor behind because you've got bigger things to attend to. You've got accomplishments, success. You've got to figure things out and make it happen. You've got to make your dreams come true. And if you've failed, if you've failed the gods, then you get what you deserve. Now, any of us who are honest with ourselves, who really have searched inwardly to see, are we really a success at doing the right thing for the right reasons? At orchestrating our lives so that the course of history will be better off because of us? Is any of us going to claim that credit? Is any of us going to claim to be the source of salvation for the United States of America? We have a Lord and God who knows who we really are. He knows the mistakes, the failures. He knows how weak we are, how lost we are. He knows how we can't even resolve the questions of our own heart and mind. And yet he says grace and peace to you. He says he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to our God and Father. In other words, Jesus knows your past. He knows what you've done. He knows it better than you know yourself, and yet he redeems it. He was there. He was on the cross. He was shedding his blood. And he was thinking all the time about you about every moment of your past, every moment where you brought sin on yourself, every moment where sin came and got you anyways. And he redeemed it all by his blood. He is the lamb who was slain, who has risen again, and who now is to be worshipped and honored and praised, not Zeus. And whatever Americans imagine Zeus to be, whatever Christians might even imagine that Zeus power to be if you can only get your life figured out. It's a fraud. And so Jesus brings us all of his accomplishments, all of his past, everything he's done in his life. We look back on history. It's all about Jesus redeeming the world. Only Jesus can redeem history. Only Jesus can give history a purpose. The future of the world is not about who gets elected in the Republican primary. 
or who gets elected in the general election, or what choices we make about how we spend our money. I mean, sure, we want a peaceful, happy place to raise our kids in, but that's not the course of history. That's only the story of men. No, Jesus says, I am the one who is coming. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn on account of him. Even so, yes. So Jesus is not only the present one, he's not only the past one, he is the future one. He's coming on clouds, which is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, it says that one like the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven and to him is given an authority and a crown, dominion to rule over all the kingdoms of the world. But then he does an interesting thing here. He brings in a second passage from Zechariah chapter 12, where Zechariah refers to the one whom they pierced. Now, both these prophecies are before Jesus' birth. So they're looking ahead. And John puts them together. The cross and the resurrection. The piercing and the glory. And he says that the one who is coming is the one who was pierced and the one who has risen and the one who is now reigning over all the kingdoms of the world. And every eye will see this. Now the question for us is do we see it now? Or will we only see it later? John is getting us to see this now. And indeed, we do mourn. We mourn when we see the death of our Savior. We grieve when we see the pain of sin in the world around us. The works of evil that cause problems. And all of that was placed on our Lord when he was pierced. So we rightly mourn as Christians. We repent. We know that the future ahead is not going to be dependent on us. How successful we are. We repent and we look ahead to the one who controls all history. He says he's coming. He's coming with glory and every eye will see that he is the one who controls our destiny. He is the Alpha, the beginning, the Omega, the end. So why do we get worried? Why do we get anxious? Why do we count the days wondering when this is going to happen, or when will that end, or when will this turn out for the better? But if we turn our focus back to the one who is, the one who was, the one who's coming, he's going to resolve those anxieties. He's going to let those things flow off you like water flows off of a rock. Because Isaiah said that he is the rock, the one who stands firm in the storm, the one who will never be moved, the God who is unlike any other. Yes, Jesus is the one. The one who is who was, who is to come. As you count your days, and some might be counting more days more quickly than others, 
As you count your days, count your blessings. Count the number of times that Jesus is with you. Count the number of times that he intervenes. Count the number of blessings that he brings to you every day. And count on him now and forever. Amen. Thank you.